I run from nothing but the High Council of Gallifrey. Mm, totally works. I ain't run from nothing but the High Council of Gallifrey. It's getting better. Is it? <laughs> Northside Gallifrey. Northside Gallifrey! Northside Long Beach. Hit the counter, make a dollar flip it. Split the dollars with my mama children. This is the Queer Archive, a queer and feminist Doctor Who podcast. I'm Brenna. And I'm Caitlin. And this week we're talking about the second part of the ghost pair, Before the Flood. Let's pull to open and talk about all the weirdness in this episode. Alright, what do we feel? I like this episode, but I find myself with very few notes on it. Yeah, agreed. I think second parters in general tend to have less to talk about because we've already talked about all the introductions, all of the scene settings, and here a lot of the action happens. So we're just like, action. I think that's part of why I always end up feeling like I like season eight better than season nine because season nine feels, it doesn't feel more uneven because eight's like wildly uneven. So uneven. But there's just, there's like a really strong episode in the pair and then there's always the, the second episode that's like, still good. So if you tend to remember the best episodes, then yeah, it's great. (laughs) Yeah. All that being said, I think, again, it's a great two-parter together. It's a great story. I just enjoy the first one better, but there's some some things I really enjoy here. Most of my pull-to-open notes are super random, so it's going to be a pretty deck seven. I think... Let's dump all our random thoughts. (laughs) I think all of my notes in pull-to-open are random. All right, let's go for it. Deck seven it is. What you got? I still super stand this whole cast. Honestly, Cass is such a badass, and we get a lot of that this episode, which I'm super on board for. And then Lun is such a real one. Yeah. He won me over in the first episode, but I continue to adore him. And this was his first acting role, wasn't right? it? Right. First gig. wild. Yeah. Pretty good. Which I also learned about Tahani in The Good Place. Anyways, back to Doctor Who. I'm going to need a Battle of the Brow situation featuring Lun and those Levy dudes. Yeah. Dan and Eugene yes. Levy. Such good brows. A lot of brow. Excellent. <laughs> if God hath given you the eyebrows of Brooke Shields, show the motherfuckers all. What about you? <laughs> when the doctor starts playing the guitar for the at the beginning, when he's playing Beethoven's fifth Magpie. on the guitar. Magpie Electric, yeah. But there's also the clockwork squirrel is on the amp. It is. <laughs> Delightful. I just, who is responsible for the clockwork squirrel actually showing up? Was it the set dresser, the prop department? Was the director like, I'm going to need the the clockwork squirrel to make an appearance? Mm. Props to whoever. Answers I do not know, but. What a silly use of your labor. (laughs) And I love it. (laughs) I mean, it could just be one of those things that just whether or not the audience notices brings them joy. That reminds me of a person on set put a craft item that his daughter made him one time. So in Carrick Braxis's vault, there is a little rocket ship or something that his daughter made him as one of like the quote unquote treasures. Yeah. Um, And he talks about it in like the commentary or whatever. So I'm sure there's just a lot of that type of stuff going on in Doctor Who that we sometimes discover. Where it's like, that's my thing and I'm going to hide it in there versus somebody literally was paid Mm -hmm. to make a prop clockwork squirrel. Somebody read that script and was like, you know what? 
the shot. You're needs. welcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I give you. And they're like, sure, yeah. Clockwork squirrel. <laughs> yeah, sure. I don't know. I thought it was funny. So the Beethoven's fifth setup. I think it's cute and silly. Yeah. It's basically it. <laughs> I mean, it's... I know on Terminus, Nicole was talking about, like, she was trying to make it make sense totally. in the universe. Yeah. And I think it's just, like, silliness. He's going to talk just, to us right now. It's just Capal- <laughs> I'm okay with Capaldi just, like, breaking that fourth wall yeah. at any time. I think he's one of the only doctors that can do that, and I'm like, yes. Yeah. He, he, he just got it. that dad role that is yeah. just, like, that totally makes sense. Like, go off on a dad tangent. He does it in Heaven Sent, too. He says, yeah. I'm nothing without my audience. And he looks at the camera, and it's like, huh, huh. All right. Cool. I guess we're doing that. Yeah. What a dad. <laughs> what a dad. I feel like I'm getting some Curse of Fenric vibes from this episode. The military training base kind of looks like the military base from the last part of the Curse of Fenric. Yeah, yeah. There's like some interrogation of government and revolution, right? You get communism as like an ooga booga, mm-hmm. but then in the end, <laughs> communism's not actually that ooga booga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Kinda, it kind of reminds it. me of it. Yeah, yeah. So Peter Capaldi played the remix of the theme apparently yeah so it transitions from him being all like Beethoven's fifth super cute I would have been fine if they'd left that the theme song for forever oh I know it was just the one one time which makes sense but I love that he takes pretty much any opportunity he can to to be like let me throw some riffs out did you know that I was in a punk The roar of the Fisher King was supplied by Corey Taylor of Slipknot, a fact that makes me laugh every time I think about it. So whack. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> Random as fuck. How? how? Did, did Corey Taylor reach out and be like, hmm. anytime, yeah, if there's a cameo that I can take, anytime, please. Or was Toby Whithouse writing this and being like, you know, you know who would be really good at making this sound? Slipknot. I gotta say, it's probably the second. <laughs> But I would be so happy if it was the first. <laughs> I would too. If I ever got famous, the first thing I would have my agent do is reach out to all the things I care about. Oh, can I play just like a random stormtrooper in Star Wars? Oh, can I make an appearance? Just like walk through a scene in Doctor Who? Thank you so much. I have many talents. I'll do it for free. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be like Lin-Manuel. Like, mm. I'm so prolific and everywhere and all the things I love. And people are just like, hey, that's Lin. Yeah, the Fisher King... Creature design feels super alien to me. Yeah. Like the franchise. Like alien. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think just the silhouette of it specifically is what made me think of aliens. Yes. There's a really good shot of it where Peter Capaldi and the alien are like face to face and it's kind of a far away shot. Yeah. And their silhouette is just framed where the alien is hovering over Peter. Yeah. Super good. And Peter Capaldi's tall. So yeah. To make him look like that's short true. and tiny like yeah. that, that's pretty good. Yeah. But also, this alien is so gross. Yeah. <laughs> how, like, how does this Fisher King's face look both like a penis and a vagina? It's really something. How? It is something. What an accomplishment. Somebody on the internet called it penis head vagina face, and that's... This is what I'm saying, exactly. Mm. They, they see me. <laughs> mm-hmm. He does have a great voice, though. Yes. Oh, that's the actor is Peter Serafinowicz. Yeah. Who has a wonderful voice. 
What else has he been in? He's totally played a bunch of... <laughs> he's been in a bunch of bit parts. The thing I always think about is he has a very small bit role in Guardians of the Galaxy. He's the one who says... What a bunch of a-holes. <laughs> and they're all lining up. <laughs> That's a great thing to be remembered for. <laughs> he's done so much work. Poor Peter Serafinowicz. So the doctor putting his finger out to feel the wind to figure out which year they're in. Yeah. <laughs> so great. It also, o- O'Donnell in the background also thinks it's so great. She's yes. all like smiling and giddy. <laughs> but I mean, I personally, I got to say, I enjoy 13 literally eating dirt Ugh. a little bit better. <laughs> <No>. I think <laughs> it's so adorable. <laughs> what a dork. Although that is a very doctory thing where they just like lick shit and you're like, what are you doing? You child. Yeah. I, that, and that's the reason why I love 13 specifically being the one to eat dirt because she is a wonderful child. Yeah. And she has such uh, so many childlike characteristics. So her eating dirt makes total sense. Extremely on brand. Yeah. Who eats a prawn sandwich? Come on, Bennett. That is disgusting. <laughs> Life choices, bro. Before you're going to time travel, like you should just uh, imagine anytime. time travel. Anytime, yes. But you should imagine time travel like an airplane. I wouldn't eat shrimp before I get on an airplane. I don't know if I would eat a prawn sandwich, even if I was planning to spend the whole day in my house. <laughs> I think there is a time and a place to eat a fried shrimp po' boy, mm. but that's it. If it's... If you trust the place, if you're by the water, maybe. I don't know. They were on a base underwater. <laughs> like, did you see their cafeteria situation? Yeah, that, that was like gross so ass pizza. That was Swedish like Swedish meatballs in a mm, big ass mm-hmm. tin. So, this is why I don't trust mm. whatever they. No. That's so disgusting. Much from Bennett. there? No. Bennett. No. Bennett. Sweetie. Sweetie. But I mean, at the same time, as much as I would like to think that I'd be super cool. And I'd be super chill about space travel. <laughs> In reality, I would totally be a Bennett. I'd be like a Courtney just throwing up just a little bit after being on the TARDIS. It would be very overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get car sickness, so I could only imagine. I would be so bummed out because yeah. space travel seems like the fucking tits. You'd be so sick. And I'd be like so excited, but also like, <laughs> why do I feel so bad? Yeah. Depends on which doctor is driving the TARDIS, I think. I think with Capaldi, I mean, you might be okay. He's a very steady driver. I would love to think that. I think if you were on Eleven's TARDIS, you'd be real fucked. Also, none of those situations is going to stop me from actually. No. The doctor... Parked I'll bet he has their a... TARDIS back in my backyard. I'd be like, mm-hmm, let's I'll go. Bet the doctor has Get the bucket ready. a motion sickness patch <gasps> of some sort. I'm sure they do. And they're just like holding out on Courtney and Bennett? Yes. That's fucking rude. <laughs> That's the first question. I'd be like, I know you got it. Give it you to got me. like sleep you patches, sleep patches yeah. Give me that thing and let's have a good time. I got one more. Okay. Fucking Prentice's business card. Prentice is the funeral director. It says, may the remorse be with you. I am (laughs) crying. (laughs) That is a beautiful gem that I did not ever see. So fucking good. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing I like about that character. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Well, all right, I think we should head into the High Council of Gallifrey. Okay. And I also think that we should end the episode by talking about some crimes. Oh, okay. Way to plan ahead. 
We're in the High Council of Gallifrey, which is where we talk about people in power positions, quote unquote, in the world of who production. Yeah. What we got? Still Toby and still Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to talk more about Toby when we get to the Black Archive. Toby Woodhouse, that true, is. True. We're on a first name basis with Toby. Mm. <laughs> Remember that one time you attended the... Yes, with Jamie Matheson. Close yeah. personal friend. <laughs> Brian next to Jamie? Yeah. Just I was watching. up on stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daniel O'Hara... I know he hasn't done any other Who work, but like I said last episode, he's done a lot of work. And he's got a pretty firm sense of directorial style. I think there's some really good shots in here. I really like the long dolly close-up after the first roar of the Fisher King. It tightens in on the Dr. O'Donnell and Bennett. I think that's a great shot. The shots, of course, when the Doctor goes down to meet the Fisher King. And then that side shot that you were talking about in the last segment just beautiful also shout out to the director of photography matthew stoddard for some bomb fucking lighting especially that the lighting makes most of those scenes actually the whole base is super like moody it's a moody scene Mm -hmm. which is really cool it's almost ghostly ironically (laughs) (laughs) yeah speaking of lighting effects i think the base having that additional effect where the you can see the sun reflecting through the water mm. projected onto the ground. Yeah. Because there's windows on top of most of the corridors. I thought that was kind of spooky and fun. Yeah. And also gave the scene a little bit more variety and texture other than like just gross, dark, moldy walls everywhere. Yeah. I would have liked the episode to be just a tad lighter because I tend to not love when everything is super dark. Yeah. And I think you can still accomplish a pretty spooky set and a spooky episode without having it to be just like actually hard to see yeah so think of like midsummer which is that um, yeah. the film that just came out yes. which is beautiful and bright almost outside the all the time <laughs> and still terrifying yeah. yeah and we do get like those scenes where they're in scotland in the cold war training base mm-hmm. those are beautiful when they're outside bright really light but the the drum is just it looks and feels moldy, which I'm sure is what they were trying to get. <laughs> yeah. It's actually pretty gross. I'm like, every time they touch a wall as they're kind of moving around the base, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, please what? don't touch that. <laughs> yeah. Or like, Lun is being backed up into a corner. Oh, yeah. And like, I'm sure that's obviously the last that's, fucking thing yeah. he's thinking about, but I'm also <laughs> watching it. I'm like, right. this you're is just sliding your body against a hill house shit. <laughs> wow. Priorities. Okay. What else we got? I think that's it. So it was more like a pit stop in the High Council this time. <laughs> Let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Two-parters be like that. Let's head to the Black Archive for a more substantial stop to talk about the tedium of compulsory heteronormativity. <laughs> All right, we're in the Black Archive, so let's talk about some of our favorite things. Race, class, sexuality, gender, bodies... All the above. What you got? I mm, I have a complicated feeling about what Toby decides to do with Cass in this episode. Totally, yeah. I like that Cass gets a love interest because Hell disabled yeah. characters are very rarely portrayed as desirable. That sucks. So I like that she gets a love interest. Mm-hmm. I do not like that she gets a love interest. Because <laughs> it's just a... An ex- this episode is... Compulsory heteronormativity in action. Everyone pairs off. And I think Lun and Cass makes more sense to me than Bennett and O'Donnell does. Mm-hmm. Like, why couldn't Bennett and O'Donnell have just been 
good friends. Yeah, I think it's the redundancy of it that it's just like, okay, we get it. Yeah. Like, it it makes the splitting into pairs, splitting into pairs. Versus if it was just Cass and Lun, I would be super on board yeah. all around because she does obviously deserve a love interest. And She's badass. She is badass and Lun is badass. Yep. And they are awesome together. They're awesome for each other. And I root for both of them so fucking hard. Yeah. So I actually really love that whole storyline. It's just the fact that it's sitting within the plot where everyone pretty much gets paired off. Yep. And they make a big deal about it. And it's just like, you could have gone so many different directions with that. There's just so many more stories to be told. It would have been really cool to see, like, the power of that relationship next to the power of a friendship with Bennett and O'Donnell. And they could have done that with Bennett and O'Donnell and the Doctor and Clara. Yep, but totally. But the dialogue with the Doctor and Clara feels like a pairing off, too, right? Mm -hmm. She tells him, you don't die with me. You wait for the next one mm -hmm. because you're my everything, basically. Absolutely. And I think we'll talk about this a little bit more in the Beckel DuVernay discussion, but... Also, the interaction that we don't really see anything of is the relationship between Cass and O'Donnell. Like, yeah. there's really nothing there, but they could have explored that as well. So yes. it's very obvious the relationships that they choose to highlight and set apart. Yep. What else we got? Anything else? I, I'm not sure there's a, a good thought that's complete here yet. Here, let me <laughs> tell you fair. what I'm I'm thinking. The specter of communism, because Cold War, paired with Prentice's disdain when he says the Tivoli were liberated by the Arcatinians. <laughs> Is there a there there? Maybe it's like, um, <laughs> maybe it's more than the specter of the Cold War. Maybe it's more like a representation of the capriciousness of government. Because the Fisher King also says something kind of nasty about the Time Lords being, what does he call them? Spineless curators. And then they became one of the most warlike right. galaxies. They found their teeth yep. and became one of the most warlike races in the universe or something like that. So I, I'm trying to figure out if this episode is being like, it's kind of looking askance at government and governmental bodies as colonizers. Or if it's just saying things. Hmm. Like, yes, but also it's not that deep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I followed all the way through that. Yes, I'm on board. But I also don't think that the episode really knows. <laughs> I think anytime somebody tosses in a Cold War reference, especially somebody of, let's say, a certain age range, it always is supposed to be like, communism is bad. And actually everyone in our age range and younger is like, well, as a theory, it's all right. <laughs> Which really You're listing scares, out bad things. Yeah, that scares the bejesus out of people who are alive and like fully mature or whatever during the Cold War. So like, anytime somebody name where it breaks down, tell yeah, me it's what's like, wrong. With it's this. like a dog whistle to me. So yeah. I'm just trying to figure out: is this episode trying to dog whistle something to me about sure. communism, or is it just saying words in an order? Mm. It does that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> communism was just a red herring. Yeah, I don't think there's super enough to, like, to dig our teeth into that. I did, though. I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Time Lord. Uh, what about Bechtel and DuVernay? Yes to DuVernay. Easy. Bechtel. Oh, my, how the mighty have fallen. <laughs> it Remember passed, that one time? <laughs> it passed so easy last episode, and this time I'm like... 
Cass and Clara say like no. two sentences to each other, but it's not a conversation. And those sentences contextually are still about Lund. So yep, they're still absolutely. talking about a man. Yeah. That sucks. Well, yeah. It's a bummer that this episode had a wobble on Bechtel. Mm. Everything was going so well before. You know what? I know what will cheer you up. We can get some warm fuzzies in the heart of the TARDIS. Okay, sounds good. Let's hear from our sponsors on the way. Perfect. This podcast is brought to you by Architen brand Faraday Cages. Loads of companies out there are offering new and interesting tech to help you manipulate and navigate electromagnetic fields, but no one can handle that like an Architenian. Adapted from methods discovered during the colonization of Arkham's 1 through 6, our Faraday cages block more electromagnetic pulses than any other technology on the market. While others might have competitive prices, Architen Brands offers Faraday cages that are the highest quality and backed by centuries of Architenian experience. Don't settle for a 5. When you need technology that can handle electromagnetic waves of all kinds, make it an Architen. Heart of the TARDIS, where we talk about feels or morals or morals. neither, I guess. It's like a half a heart. Yeah, I guess this it's got to be the know. doctor changing time to save Clara while simultaneously mm-hmm. realizing the limits of his methods, right? Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's like vaguely waters of Mars. Mm-hmm. Because this episode no is... No one's going to stop me. Yeah, no one can stop me. I'm outside the rules of time. And then something happens that's like, bitch, no. Right. So, like, he's like, yo, to Bennett. Bennett's like, you could change this. He's like, no, there's rules. We can't do this. And then he's like, you know what? I could do this. Like, let's fucking do it. Nobody could stop and me. And the TARDIS is like, no. hold up, bitch. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't think so. So he does get stopped. And then he kind of comes back to his senses and realizes like the humility of his position yes there's Um, also something we were talking about this when we were watching the episode there's something here about how this doctor 12 in particular is becoming more flexible mm. even though he was always like kind of on the edge in terms of like he has a really strong sense of internal morality but it's his sense of morality it's not in alignment with any set of rules or standards that we could identify so he was always like for us he always reads as like morally flexible but Mm -hmm. this two-parter in particular I feel like this season's kind of pushing him so that he is a little there's more wiggle room in what he thinks is right I think that's what happens when a doctor grows. Yeah. When a, any character grows, but we see it so little in the doctor. Yes. They kind of stay, a, generally stay a static character from their beginning to their end. There's little growth and sometimes it gets erased from regeneration to regeneration. But this doctor, we can actually track a pretty good growth arc. And so with that comes a flexibility of your compass and yes. your moral guide. I don't know if it happens a lot last season, Mm, um, towards the end, I'm an idiot. I yeah, think the last yeah. two episodes we start to see it. That's maybe the biggest indicator of him just being a little bit quicker to to question his own moral guide or question his, his own perception. Yeah, his yeah. like stern, stubborn, 
firmness on this is what I can and cannot do. Yeah. And so he's quicker to question, oh, maybe maybe I can. And he's moved by people. Yes. He's moved by the the concerns that are voiced by people that they meet along the way, the concerns of his companions, and that actually starts to change him. I think we'll see that in the next couple of episodes also. Yes. Him state, you guys are changing me. Yes. And it makes sense to me that as his emotional intelligence increases, his like his binary sense of what's right and what's wrong gets fuzzed up because that's like the journey of the human, right? Yeah. The, the more your emotional intelligence increases, the more you have a higher emotional maturity, the more you understand your perspective is not the only one. Yeah, yeah. And that makes it way harder to move in the world. It mm-hmm. makes it much more challenging to be an ethical human being, which is why it makes sense to me that those two are happening at the same time and that he's not he's not really good at emotional intelligence yet, but he is trying. And as he's like questioning, well, is this reaction the right one? He's also not just like, is this the right reaction to people who are having feelings, but yeah. also like is this the right reaction to what's in front of me right now? Is that the right thing to do? Right? He tells the Fisher King, But the way I see it, even a ghastly future is better than no future at all. You robbed those people of their deaths. Made them nothing more than a message in a bottle. You violated something more important than time. You can't fuck with life and death. Those are some of the things that are, they're supposed to be sacred no matter what. And I am willing to break the rules of time, the sort of conventions of my people, in order to protect the thing that I think is most sacred, which is a person's death. Hilarious, given what happens at the end of the season. Oops. Whatever. (laughs) Well, I guess that means that it's time, isn't it? It's time. Let's send something to a crack in time and space. What are we sending this week? Can we send two things? Yes. So I think it's pretty whack that Clara is talking to the doctor on the phone, convincing him not to die. Yeah. Saying that you've given me something else to be. Sucks. I think that's inconsistent with Clara's character. Yeah. Being such a self-sufficient, super self-motivated character. Yeah. Who finds meaning in the things that she does. She's a great teacher. We don't get any sense that she was like just lost without the doctor and had no life, had no ambitions, had no friendships, had no place in the world until, like, a man in a blue box came and saved her life. Yeah. It's not like a Donna situation. Yeah. So much love for Donna. <clears throat> Donna's great. But she that's, like, her whole thing when her memory's getting wiped. It's a lot of the companions thing. Yeah. It's roses. And, yeah, absolutely. So we all know that. But that's not Clara. I don't, I don't think that they needed to go there. They could have used the idea that like hey you're my best friend maybe you don't die yeah. because of that i was gonna say i think it's fine that she says you don't die with me you wait until the next one but you don't do this to me i think that's fine yeah and i think I that's that. yeah i think that's in line with the friendship and i would yeah like, you don't get to die on me you die on somebody else that's just like a desperate friend being like please don't do this to yes. me. i would say the same shit and i think you could have just stopped it right there and it would yeah. have had the same resonance absolutely so to that all right secondly yes I'm also going to send the fridging of O'Donnell. That sucks. She was such a cool character. She was. And this always fucking happens to awesome women characters in these episodes where we're like, you're awesome. The doctor likes you. You could almost be a companion maybe, but you don't have to be. Like the story can end another way without having to kill you off. Yes. And without having to kill you off to motivate a dude character. And then it also, like you were saying, Brenna, is 
very much a part of the doctor's motivation to make the decision that he makes. Yeah. And, like, just to clarify, fridging is a trope where a a woman dies to move the plot forward for the men in the room. And this is a classic example of that. Like you were saying, Caitlin, she is smart. She's cool. She's badass. She got demoted for dangling someone out of a window, for God's sake. (laughs) And what happens to her? She dies. And as she's dying, she's flirting with Bennett. And then that's the catalyst for Bennett pulling himself together. And also the catalyst for the doctor deciding to change time so that he can save Clara and defeat the Fisher King. That sucks. Yeah. To clarify, fridging, it's not only for women characters, no? It could be, like, a black character is fridged yeah, although for the it's sake of a white the, character's trajectory. Yes, but the trope originally was stuffing a woman in a fridge. Literally. There, there's <laughs> the origin. Yeah. So it has, like, what characters do... What the fuck do, is wrong with people? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It used to cool. be... Cool, so, cool, Yeah, cool, 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 Yeah, so the original, it was, like, comics... Girlfriends of superheroes. They would get killed violently Holy and stuffed shit. in fridges. <laughs> Hence, fridging. But it has been, of course, you can kill off a person of color to advance the white person's narrative. Or you could do both. Oh, why not do both? Uh, anyways. <laughs> but it's yeah, like you were so... saying earlier, this episode, it has a range of women that they could have done this well. Mm. The good thing is when you have a multiplicity of women characters you have opportunity to explore different ways to end their story, different Mm. ways to have them move throughout the episode and move throughout the plot. And some of those could end in their death and they could be a meaningful death. They can be an interesting death. And it is made possible because you have more than one woman. And what happens a lot, unfortunately, in sometimes in Doctor Who itself, is that there's only one woman. So when you continually have one woman and you kill that woman off every time, then those fridgings are way more gross and yeah. um, horrific. Egregious, yeah. Right? Um, this episode does have more than one woman, so it's not the only storyline that we see. We get to see another woman end with a heterosexual partner. Um, so you either end up in a relationship with a dude or dead. Yeah. Cool. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but No, but really. <laughs> Yikes. It, yeah, I guess in the end, like, it's still not okay. No, it's still fridging. I yeah. think they could have, part of it is her death is framed as really sad, right? She is trying to hide from the Fisher King. She looks like she has successfully done so, and then he pops back on her. Yeah. And she literally dies moaning on the floor. No hate for dying moaning on the floor, by the way, if you're in pain and you're dying. No, you die smiling. You do whatever. <laughs> but they could have given her death agency, which is what it doesn't have, yeah. which is why this is an example of fridging. Because she dies, not of her own choice. She doesn't go into it, like, brave and facing everything that's coming at her. She dies, and that advances the narrative for the two men. And Bennett, in story, calls it out. Yes. (laughs) He's like, by the way, Doctor. Yes. You're a piece of shit because this is just testing your theory. Her death was to test a fucking theory. You kind of wanted to see. Which is more of that classic Doctor Who where it's like, this is racist or this is sexist. And it's like, yeah, so don't do it. But the show's like, but we called it out. out, So that makes it okay. Well, actually, this just reinforces the narrative that you are trying to criticize by doing that. So I'm a pass. You could also call it out by not doing the thing. Yeah. (laughs) So Byronimo to both of those things. Bitch. What about top three? All right. So we talked a little bit in Pull to Open about 
how fucking awesome Len is. Yeah. And one of my favorite moments in this whole episode, but especially with him, is when he's talking to Clara, asking how she normally comforts people in her position. Because he's asking her, what should I say to you? Yes. And that was incredibly sweet. So. Just like he is. And it's also pretty great to see Clara interact with another character in an episode that meets her level of emotional intelligence. Having two people with really high emotional intelligence talk to each other is super, super awesome. Yes. Because she never, I mean, this is like when you're, it's like if you're the mom friend of your friend group, (laughs) then when somebody moms you, that is very sweet and shows that somebody sees you, recognizes the work you're doing, values you. Yeah. And for him to turn around and be like, hey, so when you're in the, when the positions are reversed, what do you normally say to people? And then when she's like, well, I say blah, 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 and the doctor's going to save us. And he goes, does that work? Do you feel that way? That's yeah. that's very sweet. Yeah. That shit hits is what I'm saying. Yeah. So perceptive and so like maybe one of the last things a lot of people in his position would think about. Yeah. Just trying to preserve themselves and survive their situation. But he's actually taking care of everyone in the room, really. Yeah. Yeah. Just an extremely perceptive character that I'm glad that they wrote in. Me too. So – I'd like to add another scene with Cass. Okay. When she's separated from Clara and is looking for Lun in one of the corridors, the sound mixing and the directing is phenomenal. Yeah. One of the best in the whole episodes, I think. The way that they bounce back and forth between silence and that vibrating metal dragging on the Mm -hmm. ground is fucking brilliant. And I love Cass getting her badass moment where she senses through the ground pretty much like Toph. Yeah. And then she like dodges that axe like. Yeah. I also, I really like, um, I think it's both cheesy and I really like that the shot when she leans down to touch the ground and yeah. the axe is made out of sound waves. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. It is like a <laughs> little heavy handed and yeah. cheesy. I guess I just love highlighting that moment. Yeah. I wish there was a little bit more from her perspective because we talked about this before. Yeah. We wish that scene from her perspective went on a little bit longer. Yeah. This is something that Dragon Prince actually does exceedingly yeah. well, because Aunt Amaya uses sign language, mm-hmm. but they often don't translate what she's saying, mm-hmm. and that is centering her experience. When they don't translate what Amaya is saying, is showing me that this is from Amaya's perspective, and if you want to understand what Amaya is saying, that's on you yeah. to go ahead and find some, do some legwork. And I wish that this episode did that for Cass because Cass is badass mm-hmm. and we deserve – she deserves to be sympathized with and we should do some work to be able to be on her level because she's well. – And she's doing the work all the time. Yes. Yeah. All right. You want to end top three with your moment? Yes. What you got? Peter Capaldi's acting after O'Donnell dies. So good. His facial expressions, it's so restrained – when Bennett says, you knew she was going to die, and he says the names, and it, there's a flip to Peter Capaldi's face, and he's like, not ashamed. It's not, like, upset. It's kind of interested. Like, he just has a full range and a, a level of nuance that other doctors up to this point have not had. So just in case you were forgetting that Peter Capaldi is very fucking good, here it is. Agreed. Well, I think that's it for this week. Mm -hmm. That's it for this week. No more moldy underwater drum. 
Next week, we're going to be talking about The Girl Who Died. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Queer Archive Pod. We want to hear from you, your thoughts, your feels on this episode. And just in case you came up with a cool, fun top three name for us, you could slide into our DMs. Give us a segment name. Help us. We've already got some suggestions floating around out there. We're, we're doing a lottery to pick one. That's not true. We're just looking for more. <laughs> <laughs> and if you got a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because it really does help other people find us. Until next time. Be gay. Do crimes. Whoa. You did the thing. It's just like you said. Bootstrap paradox. <laughs> speakers and please be my doctor whoever yeah uh-huh uh-huh yes sir yeah